Just about a month ago, CropEx announced its acquisition of Thule Technologies, a precision irrigation company led by co-founder and CEO Tom Shaplett. I always felt my job as the CEO of a startup was to create opportunities for my employees and for my customers. And the potential deal with CropEx seemed like a quantum leap forward in creating opportunities for my customers and my prospects. On today's episode, Tom shares about Thule's technology and his own entrepreneurial journey from founding the company to sale. And we're also joined by John Gates of CropEx to hear their side of the acquisition story. We decided a few years ago that M&A made sense as part of our strategy. And since then, we have been continually trying to refine this process and this machine, you know, prospecting organizations that that seem like the right fit. And so Thule came up in that process last year. We're going to talk irrigation technology, the future of artificial intelligence in ag tech, and what happens when you combine two companies and their unique data sources. You know, if you look at what Thule has built, we've built a platform for irrigation decision support that's based on one data feed, which is the evapotranspiration input data feed. But I'm excited to see what we'll build together with these two data feeds coming in. Thule Technologies and CropEx on today's Future of Agriculture podcast. fellow ag nerd. Thank you so much for joining me for another episode of the Future of Agriculture. My name is Tim Hamrich, and every week you and I get to hear from the founders, farmers, innovators, and investors, the people shaping the future of the ag industry. Before we dive into today's episode, I want to take just a moment to thank our quarterly presenting sponsor, which this quarter is Acres. Name a place, a single source where you can find land for sale, comparable sales, and easy to use maps. Can't do it? Well, that's where Acres comes in. This land analysis and mapping platform brings together the data you need to make confident decisions about buying, selling, or investing in a piece of land. That includes manually vetted comparable sales, soil data, crop history, elevation, flood insights, and more. There's no paywall. You can create a free account today at acres.co and access 10 plus layers of data along with land listings, tools for saving and customizing maps, and PDF report generation. If you're in the land business and need more than just the basics, check out their premium and enterprise plans for features that support efficient due diligence, portfolio management, and fast valuations. It's all part of Acres' mission to make the land marketplace transparent and easy to access for anyone. Check out a parcel anywhere in the U.S. for free at acres.co. That's acres.co, and thank you very much to Acres for supporting the Future of Agriculture podcast. Okay, now back to today's episode with Tom Shapland of Thule Technologies and John Gates of CropEx. We've got a great episode for you today talking about Thule's technology, Tom's entrepreneurial journey, the decision on both sides for CropEx to acquire Thule, mergers and acquisitions or M&A in ag tech and integration lessons along the way, and a really fascinating conversation toward the end about the future of artificial intelligence in ag tech. Tom Shapland is the co-founder and CEO of Thule Technologies, which is now part, as you know, of CropEx. As a graduate student at UC Davis, Tom developed the underlying technology that Thule commercialized, which is a way to measure water use of crop plants over a broad area. Specifically, they measure actual crop evapotranspiration, or ET, and he's going to talk a lot more about that here in this episode. He founded Thule in 2013 after finishing his PhD work in this area, and then he went out and started talking to customers and getting sales early, which you're going to find is an important part of his entrepreneurial journey and a big part of his advice to other entrepreneurs out there. 
Him and his co-founder, Jeff Labarge, were selected to be a part of the Y Combinator program, which is our second episode this month, I believe, with a YC alum, which is kind of cool for me. Joining us from CropX is Senior Vice President and Global Head of Product, John Gates. John also has a background in academia. He was a professor of hydrology at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, and he eventually joined CropMetrics as their chief scientist and stayed on with CropX after they acquired CropMetrics a few years ago. You're going to hear first from Tom about Thule's technology and trajectory, and then we're going to invite John to talk about the acquisition and much, much more. I'll drop into the conversation here where Tom is talking about turbulence, a critical problem in measuring actual evapotranspiration in crops, and a key insight into what led to the development of Thule Technologies. To answer that question, let's start by really zooming out and looking at human activity in terms of water use. We use more water for agriculture than any other sector of society. More than cities, more than industry, ag uses the most water. Now let's zoom in to a particular farm field. If you look at all the water that goes onto a farm field, most of it is going to go into evaporation and transpiration. Evaporation is water that gets evaporated from the plant and soil surfaces. Transpiration is water that vaporizes from within the plant tissues and goes out to the atmosphere. So most of the water that gets used by human activity is water that is getting transpired from crop canopies and moving out into the atmosphere. The rate at which crops use water is strongly influenced by the effectiveness of the wind at carrying water vapor away from that field. If you have a very calm and still day, the plants are going to transpire less water compared to a windy, more turbulent day. The challenge with figuring out how much water a crop field is using is really getting to understand the turbulence, that how effective that wind is at carrying water vapor away from the field. Methods like satellite imagery that attempt to figure out the evapotranspiration rate, they're deficient because they can't really characterize the wind. They don't really know how those trees or those corn plants are mixing up the air as it moves across the surface. And what we did in my PhD work was to characterize, to really figure out here's how the wind works above plant canopies and how water gets carried away from the plant canopies by the wind. Hmm. All right. Well, I'm trying not to get too far into the weeds too early, but I do have questions. So, you know, is essentially with satellite-based ET measurement, is it just measuring temperature differentials or is it just measuring based on imagery how much the tree is actually transpiring? And is that different in the Thule situation? The Thule situation is different than satellite imagery. With the Thule product, we put a sensor in the field and that sensor is looking at how the wind is carrying water vapor away from the field. With satellite imagery approaches, people are taking pictures of the surface of the planet, and those may be visible spectrum images, or they may be infrared waveband images, and they're trying to use those images to figure out how much water the crop field is using. There are different approaches to how to do this. A common approach is to look at the temperature of the crop surface and compare it to the air temperature, and then infer from the difference in the air temperature and the plant temperature what the evapotranspiration rate is. The problem with this is that you can't, from space, know what the wind conditions are like. Not just the mean wind conditions, like how generally how fast the wind speed is, 
but really like how effective that wind is mixing the air above it. And this is why it's important. Let's say you have a plant canopy that is 80 degrees Fahrenheit and your air temperature is also 80 degrees Fahrenheit. So you may look at that and you say, okay, well, this plant canopy isn't transpiring much because when a plant transpires, water vapor is evaporating, there's a phase change, which means that surface should be cooler. That means the plant should be cooler than the air. So this plant really must not be transpiring. It must be water stressed. But there's another reason why that plant surface might be the same temperature as the air temperature. And that's that it's really windy. The temperature of the wind, the air and the plant are the same because the wind keeps sweeping through. And every time that plant canopy tries to cool off a little bit from the evaporation, the air just warms it right back up again. And from space, you can't really see that. And that's the shortcoming of all these satellite-based methods. Satellite-based methods have a place because they can see over such big scales. They just need to be calibrated with on-the-ground evapotranspiration sensors. And there's really only one that's commercially available, and that's the Thule evapotranspiration sensor. And, and how much uh, ground can a Thule sensor cover? I mean, how many acres can one of these cover, I guess is the question. Our sensors measure an area between an acre and 10 acres, depending on basically the crop type that we're put in. The taller the crop canopy, the broader the area that we can see. Uh, I do want to go back again to kind of the early days here. You were already entrepreneurial and you're already scientific. You know, what were your items on your to-do list as you as you were starting there? And, and how did uh, you come across your, your co-founder? And Jeff, I think you said his name was. Yes, Jeff Labarge is my co-founder. As a startup founder, you're frequently interacting with other startup founders. You meet them at events or, you know, people reach out to you for advice. And the main thing that I always tell people is go get customers, go sell your product and everything else is going to fall into place. And it was a very similar thing with the story of Thule. I wanted this product to go out into the world. I'm naturally a very shy person. So sales did not come naturally, nor was it the main thing I wanted to be working on. I wanted to be building the product and improving the science behind it, even in those very early days. And it was a struggle at first because I, I didn't realize that I needed to just be spending my time selling the product and getting people using it. And if you can get people to use it, everything else will fall into place. And an example of that is the story with Jeff. Initially, it was just me trying to push the company forward. And I had met Jeff, I don't know, six months before, and we'd stayed in touch. He offered to give me advice and help me out here and there. But once we had customers, once I had signed up a whole group of customers, almost serendipitously all at once, I went to this meeting where there's a bunch of growers and started pitching my product to them and they kind of caught on with that audience. But once I had that group of customers, then Jeff joined because he could see the traction. So it was one of the initial problems that a lot of startup founders face is they can't find a co-founder. If they want a co-founder, they have trouble recruiting and, and getting a co-founder to join them. But if you have traction, it de-risks the calculation for the potential co-founder. Like, oh, this is really a thing. People really want this. I'm going to join this person and, and help them build their company. And it's the same thing with raising money. It's the same thing with bringing on employees. It's really the same thing with bringing on customers too. The sales traction is your most effective tool for building a startup. Well, I imagine the product has iterated a lot since those early days. How did you deal with, you know, the concern of like, if I sell this and it's not perfect, are they going to write me off forever? Because I know that's a real concern that's come up with other founders I've spoke with. 
Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, I think Y Combinator has good advice around this. They're always telling their batch companies, their portfolio companies, ship early. It doesn't have to be perfect. Ship and start getting feedback. In ag, it's a little trickier because we have these slow annual cycles of farming. It leads to people being more risk adverse, your customers being more risk adverse, growers being more risk adverse. But you can still find those farmers that are willing to try something new and try it on a small scale and you ship early to them and you get their feedback and you set people's expectations. Like this isn't going to be perfect, but here's what we're aiming at and here's what you're going to get in the first version. And I want to talk to you and really partner with you to understand how to make this better and understand what your needs are. And that really has been the most fun part of building Tulu. I have, I would call it maybe 10 core customers that I'm talking to frequently about my latest ideas. Um, And they've been with me from the very beginning. They feel like almost as if they've been employees in the company. They've been kind of a distributed VP of product, if you will, because these are people that really understand me, the Thule company culture and the Thule products and have really shaped the Thule products by giving us a lot of feedback. And they've partnered with us and they've enjoyed being a part of the journey too. That's great. And how did those people respond to the news of CropX acquiring the company? I'm sure there were some questions. One of the first things I did right after the deal closed and before we announced the deal to the public is I called up those 10 or so customers that we're very close with to tell them about the news so they could hear it from me. I didn't want them hearing it in a press release when you know, I would have been on the phone with them like the week before and they're like, why didn't you bring this up? So I wanted them to hear it from me and they were all really excited about it. They're excited about it because this is a great opportunity, not just for each one of them as a customer, but for all of Thule's customers. Thule has gone from having two engineers and a part-time data scientist. That part-time data scientist is me. Spent a lot of time doing other things at the business like sales and operations as well to now being a part of, I don't know, John, correct me if I'm wrong, but somewhere around 30 to 40 engineers and data scientists together, correct? And so there's so much more that we can build with this groundbreaking fundamental technology that came out of UC Davis now that we have more minds working on it. A great example of that too is just who's in this call. A lot of our core products have started with some agronomic idea that, that's in my head because I've been the agronomist on the team. Our CTO is, has an amazing mind for data, but he doesn't have the agronomy training. So he's really good at working with data and he has really good product intuition. He designs a lot of our, our UX and UI as well. I'm talking about Adrian Cowham, um, but he doesn't have quite the agronomy background. So a lot of the, the products that we've built that really require some agronomy foundation, those have all kind of hatched out of my head. I'm really excited to get to work with John, who will be bringing a fresh perspective to this really unique data set that Thule has and what we can do with it. I joke with my customers, I joke with John, that John is my professional doppelganger. We both have this academic background. We're both now building ag tech products and spending time with John has always been really fun. It's getting to talk to somebody who's not exactly you, but enough like you that kind of gets where you're coming from and, and brings new perspectives and very common interests. It's, it's really fun. I'm excited about what we're going to build together with CropX. And that's circling back on your question. That's what I told my customers about, and they're all really happy about it. They're excited to see what CropX and Thule are going to build together. Very cool. And John, that's, that's a great segue over to you. You know, uh, talk just about CropX generally here. How, how do you explain it to someone new? You know, I, I know that you all have been around a while and, and work in irrigation and there's been some acquisitions. And so just curious how, how you succinctly sum it up, what it is CropX offers. 
Yeah, so CropEx started in the agronomic measurement space, which is one thing that I loved about it from the get-go. It was um, founded in New Zealand and started with innovating new, new types of soil sensing. Our focus in expanding has been a combination of things, building out new technologies and new IP ourselves, as well as, like you alluded to, Tim, the uh, mergers and acquisition strategy. So um, those two are going hand in hand for our growth strategy. I guess another thing I would highlight about CropEx is it's very international. So we have offices in multiple countries, even as a startup, um, sell in about 50 countries. Yeah, really, really trying to get these, uh, these types of technologies that Tom's talking about and soil sensors and other things into the hands of more users. Do you remember when, when Thule first appeared on your radar and then also when it became possible that they might be an acquisition target? Well, um, yeah, I mean, I've known Tom for quite a while now. We met through uh, mutual contacts in the ag tech space. I think probably, Tom, not, not long after you um, founded the company. So we've known each other a little bit and known, known about each other's paths a little bit for quite a while. And I'll tell you, Tim, I hope you don't mind me telling this story, Tom. But um, so I moved over to that, uh, that chief scientist position in a startup, which was a, a step up for me. And it was in the irrigation space. And of course, I was full of ideas and everything. But uh, I was just like, wow, what, like, how do I prioritize? How do I do this? How do I go, go about thinking about this, uh, this challenge? And of course, I reached out to, to smart people to help me with the answer. And w- one of the first calls I made was with Tom, because I knew Tom had tackled this head on as a founder had the agronomic know-how, had that real customer learning mindset. And so, yeah, so I've I've known Tom for a while and have appreciated Tom for a long time. You know, in in terms of the the CropEx context, we decided a few years ago that M&A made sense as part of our strategy. And since then, we have been continually trying to refine this process and this machine you know, prospecting organizations that that seem like the right fit and can um, create the right value. And so Thule came up in that process last year. Could you talk more about right fit and right value? You know, how you're thinking about that? How we think about mergers and acquisitions, you know, agriculture and ag technology has all of these, um, you know, hugely regional and local specificities and idiosyncrasies, you know, like I'm sure you've heard it from, from other guests in the past and you know it firsthand, but um, the level of product refinement and specificity in order to get a good fit with the customer base in any region, it's huge, it's tremendous. And so, you know, we really look for companies and partners that can help us tap into a new market region or a market segment, something that would take us by ourselves in terms of the product learning cycle a really long time. You know, somebody like Tom coming from uh, the segment that he's in, not only does he have a good mature product for that group, but he's got the know-how, right? He knows those customers. And so, you know, we're, we're basically looking for technologies, know-how and mindset and channel to get us in, into those areas and help us expand faster. And of course, it's a little bit of a cliche, but it's also our experience as well is 
the leadership team just matters so much. Just, you know, the DNA and whether you see eye to eye, just that culture match and that mindset match is really, really critical and helps with the comfort level and it helps with the integration plans and just everything. And you just talked about some of the the positive aspects of bringing on, you know, talent like Tom. Uh, curious about what lessons you've learned through the acquisitions process about integrating companies or or not integrating them too much. In, and uh, how does that impact the way that the, the relationship between CropX and Thule will be going forward? No, it's a great question and one that I um, I think about a bunch these days. In our strategy, we decided very early on that we didn't want the uh, approach to be something like end up like a holding company where you've got all these different platforms and technologies, but they're they're kind of separate and siloed. We feel like that would be playing into the existing challenges that we have as an industry. Um, and we, we want to do it differently. So we decided that we, will, we won't do an acquisition unless there's some line of sight, maybe not immediate, but at some point to get everything kind of all playing well with each other. And so, you know, I, I like to talk about it as like a, not an M&A strategy exactly, but an M&A and integrate strategy. And integrations are hard. Look, with, with technology, no one chunk of it is insurmountable. But to sequence it in a, in a way that, you know, the technology works well, the data is interoperable seamlessly, you don't get in the way of somebody's sales cycles, you don't pull the rug out from an existing customer user experience. There is certainly a challenge and an art to all that. And I imagine, you know, part of the conversations as you guys got close to, you know, striking a deal with each other is about not just what Thule's done in the past, but where Thule's headed in the future. And so were you all aligned pretty quickly on that? And I'm curious, how how much of that can you share here? Uh, Tom, you already mentioned the growing beyond California, which makes a lot of sense, but I'm talking more like product roadmap type stuff, where where Thule's technology is going in the future. What's next? Yeah, I could start. And Tom, feel free to to add anything from your perspective. We think that the combined technologies are really special together excellent and unique together. And so we, we do plan full integration of the user experience and, and the technologies. That's certainly part of the deal hypothesis and part of the roadmap. But one, one other thing, maybe less on the technology and more on the commercial side, like Tom alluded to, is there's a lot of demand for Thule technologies and a, and a lot of interest from international. Um, and also in other regions within the United States outside of Tom's headquarters area in California. And so an, another big focus for us is, you know, doing everything that we need to do to bring those technologies to market in those sectors. Uh, and, and on the product side, you know, I wanted to ask you guys about artificial intelligence, you know, being a word that a lot of people like myself are throwing around right now <laughs> because of all, all the hype out there. I guess maybe a good starting place for this is, you know, you all have been working with artificial intelligence, I, I imagine, since since the beginning, Tom, but do recent advancements open up more possibilities for a product like Thule has to offer? There's different ways to answer that. One way to answer that is not from the perspective of what are we bringing to the farmer, but instead the perspective of what does the developer now have access to? So when neural networks were getting their, their resurrection, their second wind, and just kind of getting back into mainstream again in like 2016-ish, 
I remember needing to write the code. I was updating the number of layers in the neural network and the just the, the various aspects of the neural network architecture in TensorFlow, in, in the Python API to TensorFlow. And that was back in 2016. You can imagine that that blocked out the fact that you need to be working that deep down the stack. It wasn't all that deep down the stack. I was working with the Python API, but you still had to be writing in Python and know something about the architecture of neural networks to be trying to use this powerful new computer modeling archetype of a neural network architecture for solving a, a data problem. You still need to have some, some programming chops to do that. If you look at where things are now, instead, if you want to train a computer vision model, you don't have to be writing Python code and architecting the neural network architecture and like messing around with how many epics you're going to run for the training. Instead, you just upload your data set of images to something like Dropbox, which everyone can do. Everyone knows how to do if they know how to use the internet. You upload an Excel file, basically, that has the name of each picture and what is in that picture that you're trying to train the computer vision model to do, and you hit run, and it all takes care of itself. And what you get is basically a, the output is a hosted model uh, where you can run inferences. You can upload new pictures and see what the model predicts is in that picture. So this is something that anyone that can use a browser can do now. And it just speaks to how much more the, the AI tools have matured for developers, for people that want to build uh, different models to take some input and predict an output. I use the example here of computer vision, but for the other types of models that you might be training out there, like large language models, which are so hot right now, all these things are so much more easy for people to access and mess around with. I'll give one more example of this just to bring it back to Thule. We have, we have four deliverables in our sensor products. The actual evapotranspiration measured by the sensor, the water stress level of the plants measured by the sensor, the applied irrigation measured by the sensor, and then we take those three inputs and we produce an irrigation recommendation for the farmer. And to produce that irrigation recommendation algorithm basically required me doing a little bit of data prep of pulling in data from our database and then uploading that to one of the AutoML systems that automatically trains models. It took some iteration, but it was pretty quick to get to the output of an irrigation recommendation model that was substantially better than our previous version on a different architecture because there's all these tools out there for building and training models in a very simple way for anyone that wants to do this. I'm always encouraging my customers to try it out too because a lot of them are sitting on proprietary data sets that they can't really share and they wish they could, you know, get more value out of and have ideas of what they want to do with it. I'm always like, you know, it's pretty easy just to upload data and get hosted neural network models now um, if you want to do it. And where would you go to do that? I'm just curious to upload proprietary data in a safe way to utilize those new tools. I personally like using AutoML by Google. That's the one that I find the most intuitive to use. But if you name a Google search will show you a number of these different providers. Um, another one, Amazon has one. And I imagine, you know, in this environment where the tools are getting so much better and more accessible, the competitive advantage becomes, I mean, of course, the relationship with the customer and the distribution, but also the, the data sets that you have access to. And I imagine that has to be something where the combined value of CropX plus Thule, uh, the data sets could be really interesting to learn from each other. Is that accurate? Yeah, I think, John, I'd, I'd love to hear your answer to that. I'll give a short answer, which is I'm really excited about the sorts of products we can build 
on top of having an evapotranspiration measurement data input feed and a soil moisture data input feed. You know, if you look at what Thule has built, we've built a platform for irrigation decision support that's based on one data feed, which is the evapotranspiration input data feed. But when you think of kind of the hierarchy of how technology is built, you have some fundamental data feed coming in, you're building a product on top of that. I'm excited to see what we'll build together with these two data feeds coming in. Yeah, I um, I certainly agree with that, Tom and Tim. I, I think your inference about um, increasing value of data or where is the value in the whole AI or machine learning stack, my perspective is similar to yours. I think 10 years ago, it may have been easier to carve out some uniqueness around the infrastructure. But now that the infrastructure, like Tom has described well here, is is getting easier and better and kind of democratizing, if you will, the folks with the unique data sets will be the ones to probably um, create the most lasting advantage in this space. You know, I do think of it as a tool. You referred to it as a tool earlier, and that's kind of where I'm at too. We have a lot of examples of specific needs in the product that has been filled with some kind of AI or machine learning backed thing, but it's a role player, right? It's not like the the cure-all, be-all, end-all. I can point to individual product features in our platform that I think have been key to our, our success with certain markets and segments that I wouldn't have been able to do without this category of technology. So they're, they're a role player, but an important one. This is interesting. It's almost like, what do outsiders say about AI? What outsiders say about AI is all the hype you see on you know, the front page of the Wall Street Journal or you know, in the tech and business section of the Wall Street Journal. And what insiders say about AI is what John just said, which is you have a problem you need to solve. There are a suite of different data modeling approaches you can take. It just so happens that some of these data modeling approaches that fit under the category of AI, commonly referred to as AI, can be really powerful for solving some of these data modeling problems, like substantially more powerful than the old ways, other ways of doing it. But that doesn't mean that you throw a neural network at everything that you're trying to solve because they're just not, they're not good at some types of problems. They're also, sometimes it's like, it's just way overkill and you're creating way too much overhead for something that you can just use a linear regression for and things like that. So what insiders say is, this is a tool to help us. What outsiders say is, you know, this is going to change business in every way and it won't be long until it's Terminator and that sort of crazy hype. I think that was an interesting insight. Yeah, well put. You know, John, for you, I would assume you're venture backed, but the strategy you're following is like more of kind of like a private equity type uh, strategy. Does it take a, a unique type of investor to kind of get behind that? I always wonder if like with acquisitions, if if I'm an investor, if I'm thinking, well, hold on, I'm investing in you because I believe in you, not so you can go and invest in somebody else. I could have invested in them directly. I don't know. Maybe that's just a narrative I made up in my head. But does it take a unique type of investor to get on board with this type of strategy? Not too much. We've found it to be um, resonating with uh, a large percentage of uh, investors that we speak with. I think there's a shared understanding, especially for um, you know investors that are more in the ag tech space and look at a lot of ag tech companies, of the fragmentation challenges. And so it's been pretty good success connecting on that point. 
and talking about how the uh, the M and A strategy follows from there and, and can play a helpful role. Yeah, every every once in a while, it's just not somebody's um, cup of tea or, or comfort level, and that's okay. It won't be for everybody, but it does resonate with a large percentage of uh, investors that we are able to share that story with. Cool. I always tell people if I had to rename my podcast, it would be smart answers to dumb questions. And that was a really good example right there. So I appreciate that. And that makes sense. Um, uh, Tom, I'm curious for you, you know, I'm sure there's somebody listening that's in a similar situation that you were in 10 years ago when you started. I'm curious, you, you mentioned earlier, you almost said like kind of the advantage of being a little bit naive of not knowing how you know difficult the problems were that you were trying to solve. If you had full knowledge back then of both the challenges, but also the outcome here, um, and not to say like, you know, your work is done. I know you're still continuing to do your work, but uh, from then to today, you know, if you fully knew how hard it was, but also what the outcome would be to this point, would you still have done it? Yeah, of course I would have. It was a, a really valuable life experience. You know, I could have been selling ads for Google and you know, long since extinguished my soul at a big company. And instead, I got to learn and grow in so many different ways. The main thing I frequently think about, and this is something that I think about this in terms of my old self, and also think about this when I interact with new startup founders, you have to get sales. Sales is what's going to be driving your company forward, what's going to help you raise money, help you get employees, help you find co-founders. And sales was just the scariest, most intimidating thing especially for someone like me, who's naturally, I'm a technical person. I'm also deeply shy, or at least I used to be deeply shy. I think my past self wouldn't recognize who I am now. And the, the main thing about sales is, the, and the advice I have out there for startup, new startup founders is that it doesn't have to be scary. If you have something new that you're trying to bring out in the world, there's really nice people out there that want to learn about what you're doing and they want to connect with you. And talking to you is going to be the most interesting part of their day. So going out there and going to trade shows or even just cold calling up organizations and asking if they want to talk to you, you're going to find that you're going to get a lot of no's because that's the nature of sales. It's, you know, if you're getting rejected less than 75% of the time, it's something of a miracle. So you're mostly going to get rejected, but you're also going to interact with these people that are really happy to talk to you and will share information with you and who will become your friends over time. Like some of my close friends now originally were customers I cold called. All right, with that, we are going to end today's episode on that fantastic entrepreneurial advice. Thank you so very much to both Tom Chaplin and John Gates for being on today's episode. I highly encourage you to go check out what they're doing over at Thule Technologies, just Thule.ag, and over at CropX. It's just the word crop and the letter X. Com. Very, very cool stuff. Really appreciate that. We really covered a ton of interesting ag tech topics there from mergers and acquisitions to entrepreneurship to artificial intelligence and data integration. So cool stuff there. I hope you took as many notes as I did. Thank you very much. And thank you to Tommy Bottoms for another lead on an excellent episode. My good friend, a farmer and former guest of the show really has never steered me wrong. Thank you, Tommy. And uh, thank you to Acres for supporting this quarter of the podcast. Go check them out at Acres. Co. And last but never least, thank you for your time and your attention. I don't take it lightly. I'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation. Ag innovation.